I cannot swear to you that there is swearing on this show, but there might be. It's the kind of behavior I engage in. It's Friday, October 5th, 2018 from Slate. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. So in the end, through the revelations, the teary testimony, the angry rebuttal, through the presidential praise, fine woman, credible, compelling, through the presidential put down, where was the house? I don't know. Who was there? I don't know. From the image of a judge going from family man to calendar keeper to beach week organizer to prodigious vomiter to UB40 critic to political operative. From callers to C-SPAN to women in your workplace to half of your Twitter feed going from tentative to gushing out recounts of past traumas to a truncated investigation to the conjuring of Anita Hill to dealing with Avenatti to contrasting 1991 Chuck Grassley with 2018 Chuck Grassley. From the hour between Ford's testimony, Chris Wallace saying Republicans were doomed, to the hours after Kavanaugh's testimony, where every conservative said that man was wronged. From the drama of two senators crammed into a phone booth with the FBI on speakerphone, to a surprise conditional investigation, to a rush job, through all that, no senators changed their votes. None. The Democrats could not even stave off all the defections. In a country where we have had some terrible weeks in the last couple years, healthcare hanging on by a John McCain knit thread, Charlottesville, babies in cages, shocks and gut punches and regroupings, this was one of the most rending weeks for the country, wasn't it? Wasn't this week one that filled up your emotional bandwidth? Not one vote changed. Do you feel changed? Do you think your fellow citizen feels changed? The people you talk to, the people you know, the relatives you talk to on the phone, the people you haven't heard from from years, that person on your Facebook page, do you sense that they changed? I sense it. Not one vote changed in the Senate, though. The most deliberative body, deliberately designed with a bias towards steadiness. Well, it showed that quality or that flaw in spades. And it shows how far the politics are from the populace. Everything's different, but in the Senate, nothing changed. On the show today, I spiel about the actual silver lining behind all of this, and that is a serious thing. But first, it's a good time to take stock and put things in context. And here with all the context, and I mean over 900 pages of context, U.S. history through a really interesting set of eyes, the brilliant and sparkling Jill Lepore. Jill Lepore is prolific and brilliant, which is great because she's out with almost a thousand page book on American history. The writer for The New Yorker, the professor at Harvard, is the author of These Truths, A History of the United States, coming on the heels of, I'm going to say the best treatise on Wonder Woman ever. (laughs) Hello. The one and only. Yeah. Hello, Jill. Thanks for coming in. Hey, thanks for having me. Here's one of the, I want to talk about specifics, but in the abstract, the book is about America and America is founded by the Constitution. I'll throw out what I think are some of the flaws in it, but also I can understand why people just making it up for the first time would get it wrong. So I think a huge flaw in the Constitution is that too many people have access to the breaks. There are too many people, too many institutions who could just stop progress or stop 
a bill from becoming a law or an idea from getting instituted. There's probably a lot of counterexamples to that. What do you think of that critique? Well, I think that Woodrow Wilson would have been sympathetic with that critique. Oh, no. I've yeah. associated myself with Woodrow Wilson. <laughs> you know, Wilson, who was a political scientist at the dawn of the field of political science, undertook close study of the Constitution and, you know, the origins of our contemporary debate about, you know, originalism versus other versus other forms of constitutional jurisprudence. You know, it's Wilson, who's a Darwinian, who will say the Constitution is not a sacred document that is carved in stone, but is more like a plant and it's growing and it's evolving. And that schism really is important. There's actually this guy uh, at Columbia, Jamal Green, he did this kind of amazing little piece of research a few years ago when originalism was maybe in its heyday. And he said, all right, well, it would be interesting if you could do a controlled experiment. What if you had like a couple of other former British colonies that declared their independence yeah. and adopted a written constitution? Yeah. Do they all worship their constitution in the way that originalists here ask us to? That happened. And, yeah. and he's like, good thing that <laughs> yeah. happened. Yeah, yeah. So, hey, there's one right yeah, to the north so of us. Yeah, so he looked at Canada <laughs> yeah. and Australia. Yeah. And he did this kind of, you know, elaborate, mostly subjective, but partly quantitative analysis. So in Canada and Australia, there is no originalism. Mm-hmm. There's just no sense that this is some divinely inspired uh, sacred compact. Uh, it's an important, it's the framework of the government. It is to be you know, considered and laws need to adhere to its formulations, et cetera, et cetera. But there's no scriptural quality to it. And he kind of goes through this checklist of like, what's different about these places? Well, the same people kind of settle them. Things happen around the same time. They're all derived from kind of notions of English common law. Mm -hmm. And the thing that he comes up with is the difference that is the variable that explains this difference is evangelical Protestantism. Really? That's it? Because yeah. I was thinking structurally, I was thinking maybe it has something to do with a parliament and maybe that the powers aren't invested no, that's, uh, that's in a prime minister No, that's actually interesting. And I'm sure he has an answer to yeah, that. Yeah. And I don't remember what it was, unfortunately. Um, but he says, like, like the, re- the way that originalists read the Constitution is the way uh, fundamentalists in particular understand the Bible as having that's a right. literal truth. Yeah. And it's not to be questioned, and it is impious and heretical to question it. You know, it is it is it is like revealed religion, mm-hmm. and that that is just so suffused in our culture because this, the percentage of Americans who are uh, who ha- who adhere to some version of that form of Protestantism is higher than anywhere else in the world. I mean, it's a it's a very high percentage, and that it just kind of leaks out. And I remember when I was writing about the Tea Party, a lot of the people I met in the Tea Party read their constitution in their Bible study groups. Yeah. And they use the same mode. Well, people, they always talk about it, you know, right next to their heart. Right. Right. I keep it right in my breast pocket, just like a fighter in World War One or World War II would have one of those Bibles that right. you keep in your breast pocket so you right. don't, so the bullet doesn't right. penetrate right. it. Yeah. But then on the other side, you know, you have the, the modern version of the William Lloyd Garrison burning the constitution. And that is politically always a dead end. Right. Who is a person that was so forgotten by history that you, an historian, didn't know about him or her that is really important to America today. I didn't know about Mary Elise. Uh, she was this, <laughs> this really pretty crazy uh, Kansas farmer, uh, quite influential leader of the populist movement, the, what became the People's Party when it was formed as a party, uh, and later it fuses with the Democratic Party in the election of 1896. 
Lise was, you know, the expression of a person of this nature would be that she was a force of nature. She mm-hmm. was a very powerfully built woman with a booming, thunderous, very persuasive voice at a time without amplification. She was the That's leading, important, by the, the way. Leading, exactly. Yeah, the yeah. leading speaker on, on the populist speakers circuit. She, you know, she and her husband pretty much lost everything in the, the Depression of 1873 when a bunch of corrupt bankers pretty much destroyed the American economy after stealing the savings of all the freedmen. And she joined this revolution of farmers and laboring poor to say the government is actually protecting the interests of corporations and it's supposed to be protecting the interests of the people. We can't compete with these large agribusinesses. We can't compete with the railroads that, you know, that, that have all the best land and are given granted the best land by the federal government. And we're on these kind of arid little patches where we can't grow anything. There's a lot that's quite familiar about 19th century populism, which is left populism. Populism doesn't move to the right till the 20th century. So populism as a tradition in this country is a left movement. But she's also a suffragist. I mean, one of the reasons that she, one of the ways she thinks that the people will be enfranchised is if women can vote. And we forget about, I think, that alliance of populism and suffrage. And it's a it's a it's a mess from our standards, ethically and morally. Lease is, I mean, it's sort of a weird term to throw around a white supremacist like people use yeah. that in this kind of very loose and crazy way today yeah it used but, to mean a clansman and now it means everyone yeah, yeah 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 but she wrote a treatise in the 1890s called the problem of civilization solved and it is a white supremacist treatise the, the Please solution tell me it's is at least a thick pamphlet the solution <laughs> the solution is all the dark-skinned people should do all the work and uh-huh. all the white-skinned people should basically vote and run the society. Like it's a – it is um, – it's the H.G. Wells dystopia. And actually that's like the moment that Wells is writing. Yeah. You know. And that is among the reasons that she is forgotten because she's so reviled. So when historians later go to write the history of populism uh, – it's not that they're trying to celebrate populism in the first place because historians tend to be very uh, dismissive of populists. So did Lise, Lise operate in the world of politics as distinct from was a moral crusader or a little bit of both? She was a little bit of both. So, you know, what I think we forget because what happens when we try to t- put women into American history as political actors is we kind of only allow them to take the stage when they're doing something that is recognizably political from the standard of men at mm-hmm. the time. So 1848, they come out and they say, we'd like the right to vote. Um, 1920, they win the right to vote. 1972, the Equal Rights Amendment goes to the states for ratification. That's kind of like the three times when you see women because they're yeah. doing something of electoral That a man had to eventually vote yeah, about. Oh, yeah. Jesus, here they come again. <laughs> but for all those decades that women didn't have the right to vote before, 1920 – they were incredibly politically active because they couldn't say, change this law I vo- or I'll vote you out of office. They just crusaded against people and said, we're women, we're morally better than you are, and you must change this law because we say so. And we're your wives and your mothers and your daughters. Mm-hmm. And they would go around and they would do th- – and they, it's, it has this uh, – I find it very sort of, I will say, just kind of icky because it's all about pleading you know, and it comes across like nag is the wrong word. It's such a gendered thing to say. But there's a style that women are forced to adopt. Mm-hmm. Like they have to say on bended knee, could you please? My husband comes home drunk every night and beats all the children. I wonder if you could make it against the law for a man to hurt his children. You know, and they're so like, then was this, Carrie Nation a badass corrective thing. to that? I think these people were badasses <laughs> yeah. in private life. But this was the only way, like the right that they had as citizens was to petition. Right. You don't have to have the right to vote to petition the government. Mm-hmm. And so that's their gesture. It's always the petition like the, the, the and then it's a certain kind of a moral harangue. And it really 
I would assert, because women have still not achieved equality before the law, it still is part of our political culture. Um, polls. Uh, you write excellently about polls and polls history, and they go back to like 1933 in America. What policy in U.S. history would have been changed the most if we had accurate polling at the time? I think the chief problem, if you believe that polling is useful to a democracy, which I would not stipulate, but let's stipulate that for the sake of this answer to this open-ended question that's going to sprawl out of control unless I stipulate (laughs) something, then it would be civil rights in the 1950s and 1960s, because, and especially in the 1940s. Because what Gallup did, George Gallup, who founded the American Institute for Public Opinion in 1935, the first modern polling organization, he wanted to poll voters. And in 1935... No black man or woman in the Jim Crow South could vote. I mean, really, the figures, it's like 2% yeah. in like Louisiana. I mean, you just, you're taking your life in your hands to attempt to register. People right. don't do that. And then even when you go in, they'll ask you they'll, the, yeah, the poll tax and questions. Right. Yeah. And that is the case for the next three decades through 1965 and the Voting Rights Act. So what Gallup decided to do so that he would get an accurate poll, he wants to predict how a vote will turn out. He just didn't poll black people. He also didn't ask questions about civil rights matters because he was a syndicated columnist and his column was syndicated in the South. And Southern newspapers, when he did ask questions about civil rights, said, we're going to drop your column. Mm. So he just bowed to that political pressure. So people trying to make legislative decisions between 1935 and 1965, say, really had no information about more than a tenth of the population nationally in way more than that locally and in, in, in state elections. So you see things like, you know, when FDR will not get behind the anti-lynching bill, he just won't do it. And, and he's like, I don't, these people don't vote. Like I can't, like the people that I, whose interests I'm addressing don't vote. And he has got his polling data from Gallup. Mm-hmm. And it's not false that yeah. they're not going to vote. But if, you're, if your claim as an industry is we are amplifying the voice of the American people, that's just a, that's a lie. You're actually advancing the interests of people who are oppressing millions of people and denying them their basic rights of citizenship. So I don't, polling's never answered to that. Like we are very busy answering all kinds of people for all kinds of sins of things done a very long time ago. The polling industry has never been asked to reckon with the way in which it destabilized campaigns for civil rights in the middle of the 20th century. I think about polling, and you get at this, but I think a huge problem is it really limits, it conscribes the universe of solutions and choices. You know, a politician might have a great idea and it doesn't show up in a poll or a poll reflects that it's a loser and you don't even go out and try to convince people. I wonder how many ideas in U.S. history, just good ideas that helped us, came about because no one could poll the public to tell them you were wrong to pursue it. Yeah. I mean, there's this quite beautiful book written in 1948 by this political scientist and law professor named Lindsay Rogers. It's called like the pollsters polling and political leadership. And he says, look, it's completely antithetical to our notion of what you do when you represent the interests of the people. We don't elect delegates. Like we don't elect people to Congress to do our bidding. We elect them to represent our interests and the interests of the public at large. If we, I mean, when I was working on a piece I wrote for the New Yorker a few years ago about polling, I wanted, this really isn't polling anymore. There's only data science, but it's it's the same thing except worse. But I went around (laughs) and I asked, I asked some of these people who are doing the most cutting edge technology of data science. I said, like, if you, if there was an app on your phone where you're a member of Congress and you're about to go in and you want to vote on a piece of legislation you think is genius. Yeah. And uh, you think it's the right thing for the country. Um, And you have an app and you can instantly 
poll your constituents. And right before you're going in to cast your vote, you, you, you do that on the mm-hmm. app. And it says you should vote against this law because your constituents are really opposed to it. It's been a very well-funded campaign in, in your district. They've managed to convince people that this is going to be bad for whatever. Mm-hmm. You disagree with the, that campaign. You've read the law. You've studied the law. You have staff who've briefed you on this law. You think this is the right thing. What are you supposed to do? I hope that you would say, um, put you on the spot, but that you would vote the way you think that this is in the best interest of the country. Right. It, it would, but you would know because of this app, because it would also tell you you're not going to win your next election. Right. We are, I would say, just a whisper from that world right now. I don't know if you would agree with that. But. Yeah, it seems to be. It seems every once in a while a politician, or usually not a politician, will rail on and on and on about political bravery. And political bravery has been defined as taking a position that the polls tell you your constituency is against. But the fact that it becomes such a flashpoint and such an exception to the rule tells you everything you need to know about how conscribed we are about what the pollsters tell the politicians. Or polling fails. You know, like in 2016 or 1948, in a big, embarrassing way. And people say, what? And then they go back and do this. It's an incredible amount of money to me. Now, I don't like by polling, I don't to separate out. There's actually really interesting public opinion survey research yeah. that is really important form of social science. Asking, Absolutely. Asking people questions. But like, asking like people. I was, I, was, I was informed that the majority of white Republicans believe white people are more discriminated against than black people. I'm glad to have that knowledge. There, there still is really good research being done in that field. It's the. Campaign-funded and officeholder-funded kind of stuff, right? They sort of Dick Morris, go tell me whether or not I should admit mm-hmm. that Monica Lewinsky and I did this or did that. That sort of piece that um, I don't see how the health of the republic is restored until there's a real reckoning with what that means. The name of the book is These Truths, A History of the United States. And it's going to be a textbook soon. So for a lot of kids, it'll be the history of the United States. Jill Lepore is the author. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks a lot. And now the spiel. So while we were all watching how the Kavanaugh ordeal would play out, the polls were churning out and people were deciding all over America, whether they knew it or not, they were deciding whether they were going to vote in a few weeks. And if you checked in with certain outlets, reliable outlets, things began all of a sudden in the last few days to look a lot worse from Democrats than they ever had. A survey out today from NPR, the PBS NewsHour, and Marist College shows that Republican voters are right now as energized as Democratic voters. It's a major change from last month when enthusiasm among Republican voters was lagging behind Democrats. Add to that yesterday's top story in the Axios tip sheet put together by Mike Allen. One big thing, October surprise, the Brett Bounce. Top Republicans tell Jonathan Swan and me, that's Mike Allen, that we're seeing a surprising and widespread surge in GOP voter enthusiasm, powered largely by support for Brett Kavanaugh and his Supreme Court nomination. Polls were cited, like that poll by PBS and Maris that you heard about on NPR. And the North Dakota Senate poll, where it showed things were getting worse for Democratic incumbent Heidi Heitkamp. She's now down by eight. Oh, and an elected official was quoted. He was Kevin McCarthy on Fox News, who said prior to the Kavanaugh hearing, the intensity level was really on the Democratic side, but in the last week, there's been a fundamental shift. Not good for the Democrats. 
But now we come to the March of the Caveats. The enthusiasm gap evaporating. I read that or I heard that and I'm like, ooh, the Democrats' lead is evaporating. No, the enthusiasm gap evaporating just means more Republicans say they're going to vote. But if you look at the generic ballot, it's still over seven points in favor of the Democrats. This is the real clear politics average. And it's been between six and eight since the beginning of the summer, sometimes a little higher, a lot, a little lower in the last couple weeks. Some Republicans are more enthused, they say. I'll buy it. But the independent voter, yeah, that guy you've heard about, he still or she still wants, mostly she, wants Democrats. And that is what is left out and left behind in the idea that the lead is evaporating in enthusiasm between declared Democrats and declared Republicans. Now, the Axios piece, which really does set the conventional wisdom in Washington, does quote some political figures. Here's a quote, quote. The Kavanaugh debate has dropped a political grenade into the middle of an electorate that has been largely locked in Democrats' favor for the last six months. And that was a quote from Josh Holmes, a former top aide to Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. Elsewhere in the piece, we hear, quote, a broad bitstream, which is, I guess, better than a bit broadstream, a broad bitstream of calls, emails, cabbie conversations, I guess among people who don't call an Uber, cabbie conversations, and other input from non-DC sources, that sounds scientific, suggests a strongly negative reaction to the Kavanaugh hearings that is building far beyond the beltway to where the Democrats and the media have taken this. That quote was supplied by Stephen Law. He is a former McConnell staffer. And he runs the Senate Leadership Fund, which is a super PAC. So there we have two former McConnell staffers who supply almost all the quotes actually in quotes in that piece talking about the Brett bounce. And let me tell you, a former McConnell staffer just might have an agenda other than telling it like it is to a newsman. An agenda might include putting out word to bolster their old boss's standing among his caucus. Hey. Vote for Brett. You'll get a bounce. This fight helps us. I don't know if the fight helps them. Maybe it does. I'll allow that it might. But yesterday, a lot of Republicans were saying that Kavanaugh getting done like this, which is to say ultimately fitted for the big robe, getting done like this, it's going to drive out Republicans. Hugh Hewitt tweeted, 2016 was a judge's election. GOP won it. 2014, judges. GOP won it. So was 2002, the Leahy blockade of qualified appeals court judges. And the GOP won it. 2018 is very much a judge's election and anger isn't going to dissipate in a month. Well, once Judge Kavanaugh becomes Justice Kavanaugh, it might. And once he joins Alito, Thomas, Roberts, and Gorsuch for what they're going to call the Devil's Pentagon, guys, it's a drinking game. It's purely a drinking game. It's just like quarters, but with weakening a woman's right to choose. So I guess it really is like quarters. Once that happens, it takes away what some in the GOP and really little bit streams of evidence point to as the animating influence among Republicans. They're not going to be angry that they didn't get their way, so they're not going to go to the polls to demand they get their way. This is the weird push-me-pull-you of American politics. Matt Grossman, director of the Institute for Public Policy and Social Research at Michigan State University, was writing in 538 at a great piece showing how winning an election and getting some parts of your agenda passed leads to a backlash, and then the other team gets their politicians elected, 
And then they enact their agenda, and that leads to a backlash. The more liberal the laws are, the more conservatives come out to oppose those laws. And you get the Tea Party. The more conservatively Congress governs, the more there's a liberal backlash. And this wasn't explicitly in Grossman's piece, but it seems true with the courts also. Who cares about the courts the most? Conservatives. Why? The Warren court delivered liberal victories, and that birthed the conservative movement. So it's a check and a balance. Maybe it's just horrible indecision. Maybe it's idiotic buyer's remorse. Maybe it's complacency writ large. Or maybe it's the gigantic schizophrenic nature of a country with hundreds of millions of people, which means it's actually not schizophrenic. It's just a whole lot of things at once. Either way, a few days ago, the Republicans were braying that the injustice associated with Kavanaugh becoming an associate justice was going to help them in the midterms. Now they're gloating that it's a rebuke to Me Too. And that's fine, but midterms show that gloating ain't voting. Anger's what wins elections. But I do have to say, winning elections is what drives laws. And in this case, names the man who gets to interpret or undo those laws. And that's it for today's show. Pierre Bien-Aimé and Daniel Schrader are just producers. They've each authored a 940-page treatise on a different episode of Rick and Morty. TJ Raphael is the senior producer of Slate Podcast. She has agreed to edit Pierre and Daniel's treatise. And as bad news, both you guys picked the pickle episode. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. He had Mookie Betts as MVP before the entire thing went down, before the FBI investigation. It's just not changing his mind. The gist. Not only do I not want to be compared to Woodrow Wilson, do not even compare me to Mr. Woodman, the principal of Buchanan High School on Welcome Back, Cotter. Doom Peru, Peru, and thanks for listening. <laughs>